0: Welcome to the DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to be with you as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Happy Easter, Dave.
1: Happy Easter, Matt. Great weekend. Always uh, memorable. You you think of uh, what our Savior's done uh, for us, and, and it's a great time of of consideration. And I really, I, I find this time too, a really nice time to share uh, your faith with others. It's uh, it's, a, it's very easy, right? When you think about uh, the amazing story of the resurrection and what it means for all of us. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. And we're going to have a, a special Easter in some ways this year, because we're seeing my parents for the first time in about seven or eight months tomorrow uh, for the day. So that's that's exciting. The kids are, are really excited about that and uh, looking forward to hopefully uh, beginning to have more of these kind of normal things in the, in the months in the summer and the fall ahead. So we're going to lead off this, the show today by talking about a perhaps Easter-related story, although not one that's particularly encouraging on that front. So uh, the Gallup organization released their annual poll on church membership this last week, and I guess they typically do that in the week leading up to Easter. The headline was, U.S. church membership falls below majority for first time. 47% of American adults now belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. And if you look at that historically, so from the late 30s, when they started polling this, all the way to the late 90s, the number was more or less fluctuating around 70%. When as high as 76%, as low as 68%, but more or less steady over that 60-year period. But in the last 20 years it's fallen about 20%. And at least one of the drivers of that has been the increasing number of people that claim no religious affiliation. So we're up to 21% of Americans who say they have no religious affiliation at all, which was 8% 20 years ago. Uh, And if you look at this a little further demographically, there's there's a couple of storylines here. Uh, They're following four generations, what they call traditionalists, that's anyone born World War II or before, and then Baby Boomers, Generation X, and and Millennials. And all four of those groups are down in terms of church membership from 10 years ago. And the three older groups also down even more from 20 years ago, Millennials, there were very few that were adults 20 years ago. So that's why they're not included in that. But uh, the most notable fact is that you've got this decline in church membership as you work your way down in age. So you've got 66% of traditionalists who are church members, only 36% of millennials. So, so even if there were no decline further within those groups, as, as we get fewer traditionalists as the years go on, we can expect the overall percentage of Americans who are church members to continue to decline. But now add to this the fact that that millennial group is also the group with the largest rate of decline. So in the last decade, the other three groups all went down in church membership about 10%. Millennials went down 30%, from 51% to now 36 which means there's almost as many millennials with no religious affiliation, 31%, as there are those who are church members. But if you continue on the trajectory that the demographics would suggest that you're on, uh, you would expect by say 2030 2031 another decade that the number of people the percentage would be somewhere in the 35 to say 38% range uh, that with that continued decline plus the the rise of the millennial generation generation z um, over that period of time less church generations growing and the more church generations declining that that's kind of the the direction that we're headed
1: yeah i wonder here matt just what is causing the decline, especially among the millennials. And you'd have to go back and think through what their church experience was like when they were younger and uh, what uh, church meant to, to, to families. Um, it, it can't simply be that as soon as you leave your home and you leave your parents and you go on your own, uh, that you automatically not want to go to church. I mean, I think there are many people, myself included, when I went to college, you just were busy with other things. But then you get into your mid to late 20s and you have children and you begin to think about kind of the larger picture of things. And I think church membership is one of those things that is included there. So, you know, all, all to say it, it'd be interesting to dig deeper into the why behind uh, these numbers. Uh, perhaps one of the reasons why uh, you're seeing lower church membership is that you're also kind of seeing the the extension of adolescence uh, further and further into people's 20s and 30s, where uh, a lot of young men and women are holding off to get married until they're uh, early to mid-30s and holding off and having children also. So you might see some correlation between church membership and declining birth rates, marriage rates, et cetera.
0: I think that's a great point. I think that's, that's uh, those are parallel stories at least that are probably interconnected. I mean, I think the fact that you have this significant rise in the number of people that claim no religious affiliation and, and essentially are saying that they're not believers in, in, in broad sense, um, that that's the new thing, right? That, and then that whether that was always there, but people didn't feel comfortable saying that based upon kind of social pressures and, and norms, or That's a new development over the last generation or so that that seems to be the number that's at least driving a substantial portion of this. If we then look at the political consequences of all this, and we've been talking a lot in our study of the Tocqueville about the significant role that he envisions for the church in protecting democracy from its its worst impulses. Every group, and they broke this down a lot of different demographic ways. Every group is down over the last 20 years in terms of church membership. But what's happening is that the nation has become more stratified. Again, if you look at the the political breakdown here. So 20 years ago, the the group across all the demographic breakdowns that they did with the lowest church membership was liberals at 56%, which notice is higher than the the overall number today. And the highest group uh, in terms of church membership was conservatives and non-Hispanic black adults, both of which had 78%. So you've got a, a, a 22% spread between conservative and, and liberal. Now, interestingly, it's, it's a, only a 6% spread between Republican and Democrat 20 years ago, 77% Republicans, 71% Democrats. Today, the liberal conservative spread is now 29 points. So that, that's grown substantially. And even more dramatically, the, the spread between Democrats and Republicans is, is now 19 points from 6 to 19. So it's tripled over the course of those 20 years. So you're seeing the parties identify more uh, clearly as either secular uh, or religious. And, and so some of the lines that were blurry 20 years ago, some of the things that we're not really partisan questions, and and we're seeing this, of course, in the kinds of issues and debates that we're having, have become partisan questions, in part because of the changes in religious affiliation in the two sides of the political spectrum.
1: Yeah, and it's not to say that Democrats don't have a vision of a just society, but that vision may not include a, a moral basis uh, that's kind of found in the, in the Bible. It, it could be a moral basis that's found in, in a political religion, in a desire for progress, uh, in the belief that uh, we ought to, as human beings, um, remake the world in a way that is fair or just uh, for others. Uh, and that some of these religious categories that have been um, superimposed upon people in the past uh, produce unfairness or inequality or, or injustice. So it's but it, it really is interesting, right, that that there's communion involved in both cases. But one type of communion is a communion or commitment to a religious community uh, where the other would be kind of a communion or commitment to a political party or a political movement.
0: Now, one final thought on this from Kevin Williamson, writing at National Review today, again, on on Good Friday. This is the end of his piece. He says, quoting from the gospel according to Mark, Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. Do not expect the union to be dissolved. Do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. The question that plagued Lincoln was settled in blood at Gettysburg and immediately thereafter. But this house remains divided. And the real divide, the high stakes divide, is not red versus blue. Red versus blue is only a proxy for a larger comprehensive confrontation that is in its minor aspects political and cultural and in its major aspects spiritual, which is to say religious. And though I do not expect exceptionless uniformity of opinion among individuals, I think Lincoln had it about right this country will become to some predominating degree, all one thing or all the other. Good Friday points the way toward one possibility, the signposts pointing the way to the other possibility are everywhere around you to be seen. Yeah, I think, well, Kevin's a great
1: uh, observer of, uh, of things and, and I think that's a, a kind of ominous uh, close uh, to the piece. Certainly if you're going um, with the trajectory of things and the movement percentage wise of church attendance, et cetera, it would seem that we are very much moving in uh, that opposite direction of Good Friday.
0: Let's turn our attention to the required reading and and see what you've got for us this week from de Tocqueville, Dave.
1: So I think this connects nicely with where we are in our coverage of Tocqueville. We were at the point last week where we're finishing up a discussion of the way that democracy influences human sentiments. Uh, Remember back to the beginning of this discussion, uh, he'll tell us that People in a democratic age tend to love equality more than freedom because equality produces an immediate result. It has a, a way of kind of grasping uh, the soul and producing um, in many ways, material benefits uh, that keep one aligned uh, with equality more so than freedom. That is a much, much more difficult thing uh, to work toward and to find success in. But at the end of This part two, and we're going to really work with part the end of part two, moving into the beginning of part three, he says that in America, in the 19th century, all honest professions are reputed honorable. And he really makes a point of kind of emphasizing and he'll say work is an honorable necessity of the human condition and Americans enjoy working. Americans enjoy being productive, and that produces a great amount of industry, it produces a great amount of honesty, Uh, it produces fair dealing, and in the end, it's going to produce not only a desire for gain, but a transformation of all things within society that allows uh, for great gain. And you can look at the economic history of the United States from the 19th century up to the present day, and you can see that uh, all of these tendencies, our, our love for things and our, and our desire to work for things uh, are present uh, within our history. The problem, however, near the end of part two is what happens when, when there's a very, very productive society that allows people to get ahead and allows people to have the things that they want. What happens when this productive society becomes more immobilized? What happens when commerce isn't something that is self-propelling for every member of society, uh, but what happens when it produces perhaps an aristocracy or an oligarchy? So here at the end of part two, he suggests, and and I would uh, supplant the word aristocracy with oligarchy here, how oligarchy could issue from industry. And he says that our industrial endeavors might produce a return to um, inequality you know, between individuals. Well why? Well there could be certain industries that produce great opulence for very few and a multitude that is kind of lacking um, the the greater things in life. So here you know you think for example of high tech Right. High tech has produced a great amount of fortunes you know, for the CEOs and, and the upper class workers uh, in that industry. But for many of the individuals who are kind of on the feeding end of that industry and are, are consuming the products of high tech, you're not looking at a multitude uh, that is, say, doing well by high tech, but has kind of been turned into a different type of worker or a different type of person. So I think that this this warning that Tocqueville gives us at the end of part two, that yes, America is a successful commercial society, but don't think that commerce in and of itself will not produce some dire consequences, some unintended consequences that you'll have to deal with.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point at the historical point at which he makes it. So this is published in 1840. And we really don't have the full emergence of industrial capitalism in the United States until after the Civil War, Uh, so much so that Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, is able to make a a rather important point in his various lines of argument against the slave-based culture and economy of the South, that in the North, most people don't work for anybody else or employ anybody else. They're not employers or employees, but rather they work for themselves. You know, They may hire some seasonal help as they're harvesting their crop on their farm or something of that sort. But, but there's kind of a, a development that if you start out as somebody who needs to be hired out, you eventually earn enough money to open your own shop or develop your own trade, buy your own farm. And, and then from that point on, perhaps maybe you hire people eventually. But again, most people are kind of in this middle group that's not dependent on anyone. Now, you couldn't have said that 30 years after Lincoln's remarks in the 1860s. So by the late 19th century, you have these large-scale industrial corporations that have emerged. And you know, you think about all the the debates and concerns about the concentration of economic power and the connection to political power. What's interesting, kind of building on your point on, on tech, is that I think today we're seeing not so much the the economic dangers of of this capitalist structure i mean th- th- we can talk about those but but there are some social aspects of this right the the outsized power of the the tech corporations other large corporations and and their entrance into politics not not on the funding side not because they've got politicians in their pockets i mean th- that may still be an issue Uh, But but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about things like this last week when we had this series of corporations coming out and making these strong statements against the new voting law in Georgia. And it's kind of the implicit threat that goes along with that and and the way that they're bending to political pressure, just the politicalization of of just the general corporation, not 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 on behalf of its own interests in any obvious way. Right. It's not Coca-Cola trying to get some nice loophole that helps them compete against Pepsi or Delta trying to get the upper hand over United. It's just sort of some broad social commentary coming from these corporations.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of Tocqueville's great fears also that, that this type of movement towards an aristocratic or uh, oligarchic industrial complex, at the end of the day, threatens society by producing uh, immobility. Uh, the key to democracy functioning correctly is mobility. The, be, the ability to be able to move from one class to another to be able to have a hope and to work for that hope, to aspire toward things. And then if you work hard enough uh, to have that payoff and 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 to make the grade and and to get ahead, et cetera. but this could uh, this could produce these these types of um, modern um, tendencies could produce immobility. And you think of high tech on that end as well. How often do we see high tech um, become an end in itself, especially for our children and produce a certain type of immobility, right? You're captured by your screen, right? Rather than doing productive enterprises which you could do with a computer more often than not you become a consumer uh, than a producer. You become immobilized rather than a mobile force in life. And that's true. Um, in your work and as I, as you just mentioned, it may be uh, true in your thoughts. you know if you have high tech that is immobilizing your thought because it's banning or, or banning something, sanctioning others, then will you even think? Will you, will you continue to think for yourself and I think that's a problem as well. So um, well moving into the beginning of, of part uh, three, he transitions to the way that democracy influences our mores or the habits of our hearts. And I want to focus in on the first two chapters of part three, chapter one, in which he deals with how mores have become milder in a democratic age, and then chapter two, uh, how democracy renders our relations with one another milder or or easier. And there's this great section uh, or this great uh, excerpt of a letter written in 1675 by a French noble uh, to her daughter. And it's a very loving letter. You could probably see this type of letter written from any mother to a daughter. But in the letter itself, uh, she writes, um, you speak to me quite jokingly of our miseries. We are no longer broken so much on the wheel, one per week to maintain justice. It is true that hanging now appears to me a refreshment I've got a wholly different idea of justice since I've been in this part of the country. Your galley slaves appear to me, a society of honest people who have withdrawn from the world to lead a mild life. this is a woman who's writing lovingly to her daughter, but then suggests that she enjoys seeing people kind of broken on the wheel. I'm seeing people kind of torn apart. Why is it right? That a very kind and loving mother could have just this, inability to see the humanity of another. And Tocqueville's answer is in an aristocratic age, you tend to be incredibly sympathetic to your own, but you don't have compassion for those who are not like you. What do you make of this, Matt?
0: And it's one of the the great blessings that of democracy is that it extends that range of compassion. You don't have a desire to make heroic sacrifices on behalf of your neighbor, but, but you care for your neighbor, right? When you, when you're, when your neighbor loses his job, you can appreciate that because you, you know what it's like to have insecurity financially. Maybe you've never lost your job or not in the same way, but you could imagine that when your neighbor is sick, right? You've been through that or is, is dealing with an ailing parent or something of that sort, right? So there's, there's a lot of problems that are, that are common problems that we can relate to. And, and we have, because we, We have this underlying principle of equality in democratic society. We have that broad sympathy for those who are suffering around us. Now there's an interesting passage though, very near the end of of the first chapter there in part three, where he talks about how this only works where even in democratic society, you see the other individual as your equal. And he's talking in this context uh, about slavery. And so I'm just gonna quote briefly what he says. There's just the same man who is full of humanity for those like him, when they are at the same time, his equals becomes insensitive to their sorrows as soon as equality ceases." And again, the, the context of the passage is his discussion of slavery. And so how is it that you can have this mildness, generally speaking, in the mores of a democratic society, this, this broad compassion and yet cruel slaveholding happening right alongside that, it's because all men are created equal isn't, isn't actually being realized in that antebellum American society. And to go back
1: to his emphasis on the need for civic associations and political associations and newspapers and things that bring people together, what happens to democratic society when you don't have those opportunities to see the other as yourself, right? We've lived in the last 14, 16 months, in many ways separated from each other and that isolation right produces kind of a a further tendency to cut away at the compassion that he says is or sh- he argues uh, should be central all right to a democratic
0: age yeah i think if you think about the specific application of this obviously not in the extreme form that we're talking about with 19th century slavery, but but what happens when you begin to see your political opponents as as enemies of the people or as deplorables or as Neanderthals, right? These kind of terms that, that, that distinguish you from them and suggest an inequality and, and making it unnecessary really for you to, to meet them on their own ground, right? To meet them on, on ground where you're going to actually engage in a serious political debate over serious questions. You can just dismiss them and their ideas wholly um, and entirely without any further reflection. What what happens there? And 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 do we as we begin to, to lose that broad sense of equality across political lines, do we expect to maintain the compassion that comes along with democracy, the sympathy for those that think differently from us on political questions? How could that how could that survive? And, and of course, we see uh, the way that the online mobs right, go after with with such with such rage individuals who cross them in one way or the other?
1: Well, we begin to separate from one another. We begin to have an exodus. We, we only trade with those who are like us. We only speak to those who are like us. And what happens, right, is you go back to uh, Kevin's piece, you, you, you produce a divided society uh, in which each sees the other uh, as their enemy, uh, which is uh, highly problematic for a place like the United States that... Was built right on the opposite um, ideas and the opposite um, activities. So anyway, um, I, you know the other thing that he brings up here at, at the beginning of part three in talking about our mores, as he suggests that democracy will make our relations with one another simpler and easier. Uh, that um, we tend not to think of of the other as being in a different class. So here, quite different, right, than the direction we're moving in. We tend not to think in aristocratic terms and be haughty towards one another, but we see in another a a potential trading partner, or we see in another a potential neighbor. Um, And uh, our ability to communicate with one another uh, because we're on a same plane uh, is increased. So once again, going back to your previous point, uh, if you view yourself better than the other, if you view yourself holier than the other, you're gonna tend to want to separate yourself uh, from the other and you're not going to have those easy, smooth, mild relations with the other. So the hope and prospect for democracy is undone, right? When a democracy becomes fragmented.
0: Yeah, I think about that Seinfeld episode where uh, the issue of abortion was was front and center, and, and and Elaine is just shocked to find out that her boyfriend David Putty is is pro-life, and and then Jerry kind of challenges her. So is everybody that you meet? Are you going to be finding out what they think about abortion? Are you not going to go to the pizza place because the the person who owns the pizza place is is pro-life? Or how how far are you going to go? And there's a there's a direction we're going that was 25 years ago right but i think it's very prophetic and the direction we've gone in the years since to think about how we we want to make sure that the people that we're connected to think all the right ways and have all the right um, views on on the hot button questions of the day
1: yeah that's part of the tragedy once again in the last 14 to 16 months because i think that tendency has just been exacerbated as we kind of are alone by ourselves or with our small little groups we've We've had more time to kind of just consolidate. We're just going to be with my type of person. And it shows itself right on mask, anti-mask, church, no church. And uh, it just goes on and on, I think, uh, problematically. Probably, um, you know, to to, uh, the great um, enjoyment of of those who enjoy that type of divisiveness and who who want to be separate or have a pride in their separateness from the other.
0: Yeah, an ugly blood sport that we're we're too eager to participate in.
1: So anyway, the adjacent reading for today, Matt, is Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws, where he talks about the influence that commerce can have, the positive influence that commerce can have in kind of fighting against what we're talking about here. Montesquieu writes, commerce is a cure for the most destructive prejudices, for it is almost a general rule that wherever we find agreeable manners, there commerce flourishes, and that wherever there is commerce, there we meet with agreeable manners. So we, we have the commerce now, Matt, but do we have the agreeable manners? Now, so what is it about commerce that produces agreeable manners? Peace, Montesquieu writes, is the natural effect of trade. Two nations who traffic with each other become reciprocally dependent, for if one has an interest in buying, the other has an interest in selling, and thus their union is founded on their mutual necessities. But if the spirit of commerce unites nations, it does not in the same manner unite individuals. Perhaps this is where Montesquieu is getting to where we may get uh, moving forward here. We see that in countries where the people move only by the spirit of commerce, they make a traffic of all the humane, all the moral virtues. The most trifling things, those which humanity would demand are they done or they're given only for money. The spirit of trade produces in the mind of a man a certain sense of exact justice opposite on the one hand to robbery, and on the other to those moral virtues which forbid our always adhering rigidly to the rules of private interest, and suffer us to neglect this for the advantage of others." So commerce is is an excellent thing, in particular, it's an excellent thing for nations, according to Montesquieu, and it can be a very good thing for individuals if it produces a sense of exact justice. If it's going back to our previous conversation, if it produces self-interest, well understood. But read between the lines with Montesquieu and you can see that commerce or self-interest wrongly understood can turn all of our activities with one another into merely transactions. And that's when things become difficult uh, for society.
0: Yeah, the good side of this is you see the other person as a potential customer. And so you, you're eager to please that person, you're eager to find some way to ingratiate yourself with them. But on the other hand, you may also see them merely as a potential customer. And, and so have that relationship defined only on the economic terms rather than seeing them as a, as a fully formed human. But, but I think on the individual question of, of how commerce affects us, right, this, is, this is I think a, a, a deep point in de Tocqueville as well, the danger of this materialism that is encouraged by democracy that allows for people to provide for their families and, and you know, a, lot, a lot of good things that go along with that, the, the dignity of being able to, to work and be rewarded for that work and to care for your family and to provide for that family and to be independent in, 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 in good ways. All that can be great if we don't buy into materialism as, as the whole story, right? If we don't turn our lives into merely a pursuit of material goods. And of course, connected to our earlier point, this is where the church comes in, which reminds us that there is the rest of life, that material pursuits serve ultimately Christ's kingdom. And so as we see the decline of the church in the United States, following the pattern we've seen a generation before in Europe, then should not we expect to see the emerging materialism to be unchecked or less checked For us to see each other more as as mere commodities to be traded? Yes, and it'll
1: go into different areas of our life. And we're going to see this next week uh, when we talk about the influence that democracy exerts upon the family. So this um, softening of relations, making relations simpler and easier, perhaps, how's that influence the family? So my assignment for our readers, for our listeners for next week is to begin with chapter eight of part three uh, that begins on page 558 if you're using the Mansfield Winthrop uh, translation and that will run through discussion of democracy's influence on in the family, on the education of girls, uh, of um, daughters and wives, and then whether equality maintains good mores in America and how it affects the understanding of the equality of, of men and women. So, chapters eight through twelve, part three for next week.
0: Looking forward to it. A lot of great stuff there. I Think of a lot of immediately contemporary applications as well. So, speaking of that, let's turn to the headlines. And you know, we've, a lot of different directions we can go with the material you've just given to us, Dave, from de Tocqueville and, and Montesquieu. But we were talking about earlier the the danger of thinking of fellow citizens as enemies. And I think one of the most common ways that's encouraged today is by giving the worst characterization of the policies advocated by one's opponents and, and, and their motives for advocating them, right? These sort of straw man arguments that that go to the worst possible way of describing a policy and then assuming that the motives behind that policy must, must be wicked as well. So there's an essay uh, by Carl Cannon up at Real Clear Politics today called President Jim Eagle, uh, which... Uh, you may recall the the line from President Biden's press conference where he said that the new Georgia voting law made Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. And I'm not sure anyone entirely knew what he meant by that, except that it seemed like the point was that it made Jim Crow look good in, in comparison. Uh, but lest we wonder about what he meant by that, uh, earlier on this week, he appeared on Sports Center and said, this is Jim Crow, speaking of this voting rights um, debate. This is Jim Crow on steroids. What they're doing in Georgia and 40 other states. So interesting. 40 other states. Now, you know, there, there's different bills that have been filed in, by some counts, 43 states concerning voting. And so maybe that's what he has in mind. But but if they're doing this in 40 states, that that includes some of those states that voted for Joe Biden, right? So we're trying to understand just how seriously we should take the claim, right? He's in, he's invoking. One of the ugliest parts of American history. And he's applying that label to actions that are taking place in 41 of our 50 states. Now, is he serious? Right? Is he serious when he does that? Is does he actually mean what he says? If he's not serious, that's a pretty serious thing, right? To invoke that history and say, Well, we're doing that today in a large part of our country. Oh, well, I don't really mean that actually, but Anyway, for political points, I'm going to say those kind of things. But if he actually means it, then we better spend some time looking at this and seeing if if the charge is actually fair. So that's what Cannon does, and and Cannon essentially takes takes Biden seriously, and he looks at the most significant part of this comparison by by looking at the actual history of Jim Crow, and and it's a very painful story to to reread every, every time you. Come in contact with these with these facts and these stories and you know this historical uh, series of events. It's 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 heartrending to read about this. So he he talks about the the four thousand lynchings documented by the Equal Justice Initiative between 1877 and 1950, uh, the murder of Emmett Till in 1955, the bombings of black churches in Birmingham and Montgomery in 1957. Uh, The violent efforts to prevent desegregation in Southern schools in the early 60s, late 50s, and the murder of three voting rights activists in 1964. And obviously you could multiply examples beyond that and you could elaborate the story further, but he goes through this again in some considerable detail. And so he comes to the conclusion of the piece. That's the kind of bravery and sacrifice it took to get the vote in the South. And it explains why African-Americans and civil rights leaders are so vehemently opposed to any efforts that they perceive as impediments to voting. What it doesn't explain is why the 21st century Democratic Party and its titular leader would casually compare systemic racial terrorism that lasted generations to legislation requiring all Americans to show identification of polling places. This is more than cheap political demagoguery. It's obscene. When Donald Trump likens his being impeached to a lynching, Living relatives of Willie Edwards and Emmett Till called this comparison ignorant and insensitive and offensive. They were right, but now Biden is invoking racist history and doing it to score partisan political points. Millions of Americans who voted for him hoped they were, they were done having to listen to such blasphemy from the White House. It took 65 days and one news conference to disappoint them.
1: Well, I think he has a point. I, I think that when we're considering matters of justice and what's important is perspective, what's important is context, and and what is also, I think, important is right measure. And any great leader ought to be encouraging a right measure. Uh, and if you're suggesting uh, that one thing is the same as another and one thing that you're comparing it to is, is horrible, it's terrorism, it's, it's an awful thing, and suggesting that the new thing is like that, then you're encouraging uh, your supporters to really have a wrong view uh, of the matter. And that in turn leads to what more animosity, more hatred toward those individuals uh, who have brought forth this legislation. So um, justice requires measure. But if you're feeding off of um, a lack of measure because you want to rally your base, uh, then you're not producing something that's going to unify the country, but it's going to put it further apart.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it will justify the most extreme measures in response to this. Right? This, is, this is all connected, it seems, to an effort to pass a, a national voting law. We talked about the, the For the People Act several shows ago and, and some of the things that that would entail. And if you can show that the states are so grossly irresponsible that they're basically bringing back Jim Crow in 41 states of the Union, well, then of course we ought to have a national law that prevents that, right? Every 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 decent person should rally to that cause in order to pass this law, in order to prevent a return to this horrific history of the past. If that's if that's what's actually happening. Now let's look at some of the particular provisions that he he singles out. In in a statement that he issued from the White House, so the, presumably the most considered statement. This is written out. This is you know a press release, right? Rather than just an off the cuff remark, sports center or a press conference, right? You can always misspeak in those contexts when you're speaking without uh, preparation. But but this is a prepared statement, and so it's a couple paragraphs where he responds, in particular, to the passage of that of that Georgia law. And the first paragraph he talks about the role that Georgia played in the 2020 election. initial presidential election and the Senate runoff and obviously how important getting the vote right was in both those contexts. And he continues that instead of celebrating the rights of all Georgians to vote or winning campaigns on the merits of their ideas, Republicans in the state instead rushed through an un-American law to deny people the right to vote. This law, like so many others being pursued by Republicans in state houses across the country, is a blatant attack on the Constitution and good conscience. Among the outrageous parts of this new state law, it ends voting hours early, so working people can't cast their vote after their shift is over. It adds rigid restrictions on casting absentee ballots that will effectively deny the right to vote to countless voters, and it makes it a crime to provide water to voters while they wait in line. Lines Republican officials themselves have created by reducing the number of polling sites across the state disproportionately in Black neighborhoods. This is Jim Crow in the 21st century. It must end. Okay, so as as he lays out the claim that this is outrageous and this is Jim Crow in the 21st century, he cites three different provisions of the law at least as he presents them. The first one, how it ends voting hours early. Well, this particular claim in this particular context earned four Pinocchios, which is the worst rating from the Washington Post fact checker uh, because it's simply false. Uh, the law makes no change in the voting hours on election day And it actually requires that early voting polling places be open at least from nine to five, Uh, whereas in the past, sometimes they would only be open for part of a day, depending upon the working hours of the individuals at that particular polling station. Okay, second thing he talks about is rigid restrictions on casting absentee ballots. Well, let's let's start with the fact that it actually allows at-will absentee vote. So Unlike 14 states, which require you to give some just cause for getting an absentee ballot in Georgia under this law as before, any any voter who's qualified to vote can get an absentee ballot. Okay, so that, that doesn't change. There are three changes that the New York Times cites in an article where they take issue with this law as, as being problematic from the standpoint of absentee ballots. So let's talk about those. So one is it reduces the period You can apply for absentee ballots from 180 days down to 78. Now, that may or may not be something that you think is is a good idea, but 78 days takes you back from November 3rd to August 17th, which happens to be the first day of the Democratic National Convention during the last election cycle. In other words, the the formal beginning of the general election campaign. Okay, the, the second thing that the New York Times mentions and that was mentioned in the canon piece as the maybe primary concern was requiring an ID on uh, to vote by an absentee ballot now 11 states currently require an ID including North Carolina Pennsylvania and Wisconsin so it's it's the minority most states only require an ID if you're going to be a first-time voter voting absentee um, but 11 states now plus Georgia the 12th require it if you're going to vote anytime by absentee ballot you have to have some copy now they do have a provision If you don't have a government-issued ID, then there's other forms of identification that you can use, but some sort of identification is required in order to cast your absentee ballot. The last provision the New York Times highlights is the fact that the Georgia law forbids officials from sending absentee ballot applications to every voter, regardless of whether they've asked for one. Now this is following the procedure in 38 states, okay? So there's actually only about a dozen states that, that send those applications out to every voter regardless of whether you ask for it. So what does it all amount to? Well, look, you can have different views on whether these are restrictions that are too strict or this is too loose, this is about right. I have a reasonable debate about all that. But there's nothing in here that's not mainstream. We've got groups of states that do it one way, groups of states that do it another way, there are red and blue differences, but there's purple states that are doing it one way and there's blue states and red. So none of this breaks down in a purely partisan way. None of this is, is such that you can say, well, just sort of obviously there's something uniquely bad about what Georgia is doing or uniquely contrary to recent and historical precedent. And so there's really a reason to rise up and challenge this particular law. So that's on the absentee ballot side. The third outrage that that Biden talks about is this uh, alleged ban on people providing water to individuals who are waiting in line to vote. And as as Dan McLaughlin at National Review notes, uh, that's just plainly false. Uh, If you actually read the law, what it does it's it's about electioneering, right? It's to prevent somebody from coming up with 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 branded vote Biden water bottles or vote Trump water bottles, MAGA water bottles, handing them out, getting around anti-electioneering laws. You know, you're not supposed to be electioneering as we're walking to the polls. You're supposed to be sort of a a, a place where you're allowed to collect your thoughts and you know know who you're going to vote for, you're making your last minute decision, whatever, but you're not being bombarded with propaganda by various campaigns at that point. So they're allowed to set out water stations. They're allowed to provide things in a way that anyone can go up to and get it. Um, but no one's handing it out. There's, there's no connection with any cause or campaign. That, that's, that's the point of it. And again, maybe you think that's overly restrictive. Maybe you think it's uh, unnecessary, but you know, other states have these laws. McLaughlin points out Minnesota, Montana, Delaware, New York, all have similar provisions. Certainly not Jim Crow orientation in the law to, to be cautious about whether you're going to have electioneering around the polling place. Right? So look, again, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to have objections to various provisions of these laws. What, what it's not reasonable to do is to deal in such bad faith that you mischaracterize the law, compare it to horrific episodes, laws, restrictions, actions from earlier in our history, and, and just assume that that should settle the question how we ought to respond to this law and and then try to stir up, get the Major League Baseball All-Star game out of Georgia, get the corporations to making their statements, put maximum pressure on the, the legislators and the people of Georgia based upon a mischaracterization of the measure and the motives behind it.
1: Yeah, and I think here on election law, there's a great opportunity to come up with a reasonable solution. And I think I would be in favor of a national law that kind of set some standards. And I, I would think that there'd be reasonable people in the House and the Senate who could come together on a bill that would get more than 50% of the support of both the houses of Congress. Now, would President Biden sign that law? That, that's, that'd be an interesting question, but I just don't think this is one of those hard ones, Matt. I think that, that you can come up with a way to have a standard that is a fair way where people who want to be heard in the voting process can be heard votes can be counted and you have elections that people trust. Well, Hopefully Senator Manchin of West Virginia or people who are in that group of five to 10 that will uh, make legislation happen or not happen uh, uh, would listen to something like this. And I think it'd be go a great way to help uh, bridging the divide that is uh, continue to grow uh, deeper or larger.
0: Let's turn out to the grade book. And you know, yesterday of course was opening day for baseball, lots of entertaining games, Eight of the 13 games that were played yesterday were decided by one run, and four of those went extra innings. So that's as good a beginning as you could have if you're Major League Baseball, I think. Uh, a couple of games had to be canceled. Red Sox because of weather, Washington and the Mets because of COVID on the Washington side. So that's, that's uh, too bad for everybody there and certainly hope for a quick recovery for the players involved. But, but overall, a, a, a nice start to the season. Uh, Capped off, at least for us personally, by uh, the draft for the fantasy baseball team that we're going to be co-managing this year. Thank you, Dave, for the last minute invitation to join you on that. Now, we had the texts flying last night since I wasn't able to uh, join as co-manager until after the draft was over. But I think we did pretty well, um, despite the challenges of of all that and just kind of trying to figure out a, a new format. How would you grade our team?
1: I'd give it a solid... Be. I, I wasn't. I've never done the head-to-head, so I, I'm kind of interested to see how well uh, it'll work. And uh, a scurrying about because I was only able to uh, get in the league I think 10 minutes prior to the, or half an hour prior to the draft. So uh, dinner was a was a, a mess at the Corbin household last night because yeah. of this this all-consuming important fantasy <laughs> baseball draft. But priorities right you have to you know, yeah realize what so
0: if you don't get the draft right it's hard it's hard. baseball you know it it's, is, it's yeah. just football there's enough variability and in injuries that you can you can do kind of a c c minus draft and still be fine by the end of the year but baseball especially in a deep league boy there's there's probably not a lot of talent that's coming off the bench we'll see how we do well i'm sure we'll we'll keep checking in with that as the season goes forward uh we're gonna have a little bit of fun today related to opening day, um, grading the entertainment value of two of the most memorable moments from yesterday's baseball, uh, both of which involve some real superstar players. So uh, first these are, these are classics. You got to watch the video. If you haven't seen these yesterday in Detroit, uh, Miguel Cabrera batting against Cleveland's ace, Shane Bieber hits the first home run of the entire season in almost blinding snow so as the bat begins there's just a few snowflakes coming down and as he gets to the second third pitch the, the snow's just just coming down he hits the ball uh, but it bounces off the railing above the fence so it's a home run it's out of the park but it bounces back towards the field and so he doesn't know because he can't see all that clearly with the snow he doesn't know he's hit a home run so he's rounding the bases he gets the second base does a nice pop-up slide <laughs> And then comes out the base, kind of shrugging his shoulders, looking for the umpire. You know what what happened there? Do I get to keep going? And then eventually he does get waved on, and he completes his home run trot and and uh, and scores the home run. But it takes a little longer than normal, and a little little dirtier pants than the normal uh, home run. So we got we got snow. We got this kind of weird bounce. The, the outfitter almost caught the ball. We got a great slide, and then we got this this look of disbelief as Cabrera tries to figure out what's going on.
1: I think uh, early April uh, baseball is always kind of fun for that. cold temperatures and all that. So I'd yeah. give it an A because it didn't affect the outcome of the game. They got it right. That, I, it's kind of funny to see those things happen in sports, those bloopers. So
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. It's, it's the kind of thing that uh, he, can, he can laugh about it easily after the fact, which may not entirely be the case with our second item. So uh, this one I think maybe was played up even more prominently if you were watching highlights later in the evening last night or this morning. But the Dodgers were in Colorado yesterday. And, you know, you might think if anywhere there's going to be snow, it'd be Colorado, but it looked like a nice day there. Uh, Justin Turner on first base. uh, The last time we saw him was on the field celebrating the World Series Championship with having just tested positive for COVID. um, All the controversies surrounding that. So he's on first base. Clay Bellinger, the great Dodgers slugger, is up. And he hits the same same sort of ball, except it was to, to left field instead of right field. The outfielder goes back, jumps up. He actually catches the ball, but then the momentum carries his arm onto the railing. And as it hits the railing, the, the glove releases the ball and it falls onto the, the, the walkway there and, and a fan picks it up. But he picks it up in this kind of nonchalant way. I don't know if he's thinking about this, but he just kind of pockets it basically in his glove. And you wouldn't even know he has it. So he's not he's not jumping up and down like you would normally do in that situation. So Turner makes it to second base. He's rounding second and he looks up and and he thinks the outfielder's caught the ball. So now he's got to hightail it back to first base. So he starts charging back to first base. Meanwhile, Bellinger saw that it went out. He knows it's a home run. So he's he's in his trot. He's between first and second. And so Turner zooms right on by him all the way back to first base. They get there and and they realize we got a problem here, right? (laughs) Because although Bellinger didn't really pass Turner on the baselines, Turner made it so that bellinger was ahead so that that's an out bellinger's out he gets a single and an rbi turner gets to score his stats are fine but but bellinger loses an rbi and a home run in the very first game of the season the dodgers lose a run in a game they eventually lost and 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 turner is kind of laughing it up in the dugout after the fact bellinger not quite so happy
1: not a Turner fan uh, because of last year's World Series. So uh, this is an easy one to grade for me. Um, an F. I'd, I'd give it an. <laughs> I'd, I would have given it an F minus. Uh, we have Bellinger on our team, so if that yeah, no. affected <laughs> right us, then uh, that could have been you know really. People, what can you give him a G for that? Right. So, <laughs> garbage. Right. Thankfully,
0: one. we because we drafted last night, the, those first games didn't count either way for us. But we would have. Yeah, we would have lost a home run at RBI. Yeah, that's that's quite a few points in and, and head to head fantasy baseball so you're right with taking the personal side of this it's got to be a very very low grade but yeah you know you you can't really blame Turner I mean he's he's doing what he should do in that situation normally but it's just this this combination of circumstances and uh, you know the Dodgers title defense doesn't get off to a great start nor does Bellinger's attempt to reclaim his his home run crown from two years ago we're gonna wrap up the show with the crystal ball And, you know, it was a difficult week for us last week, Dave. Um, We had three NCAA picks from the Sweet 16. You missed on all three. I I only hit on one out of three. So that leaves us at 16 and 10 and 11 and 15, respectively. We've got three games to go in the NCAA tournament. We're going to try to pick all three of them. Obviously, two, we know the matchup. We don't know the final matchup, but we'll try to pick our, our champion as well. So the first game, we've got Texas matchup, Houston against Baylor. Uh, Baylor, five-point favorite, of course, the number 1 seed most of the year, the number 2 team in the country. Can Houston keep it close or pull off the upset, or are you going to stick with Baylor, Dave?
1: I'm going to stick with Baylor. I, th- I think uh, they impressed me last week. I, I didn't think they were going to make it to the Final Four. So I, I say uh, I give the points away, and I think that uh, they go into the final.
0: Okay, I'm going to take the upset here, at least uh, on the point spread side. I'm not sure Houston wins the game. I think it could be real close, but I think they can manage to keep it under five points. So I'm going to take the opposite side and that, that might give me a chance to, to sneak up a little bit on you and the overall cumulative standings. Second game, we've got UCLA, really remarkable. I mean, one of the, the great storied schools, obviously, in the history of NCAA basketball, but, but this particular year, one of the last teams in, they're in the first four, they win that. But we said first four teams often do pretty well, not usually this well, though, all the way to the final four against the team of the season, maybe the team of the century, Gonzaga still undefeated, Gonzaga 14 point favorite. Can UCLA keep it close or, or pull off the shocker?
1: I don't think they do. I mean, the last team that did this was Virginia Commonwealth 10 years ago and uh, they went to the final four and the final four was actually quite quite weak that year. It was made up of a lot of uh, kind of lower seeds than usual, but I think Gonzaga is just a, a machine. So I, I, I take Gonzaga and give the points away and, and we get to a final. I think everyone's been waiting for Gonzaga versus Baylor.
0: I agree with you on Gonzaga. I just think you know, they've only had one game this entire season. They haven't won by at least 10 points. So 14 isn't really that big of a margin. That's just sort of a normal matchup for them. And you just kind of think that UCLA's run, it's going to end, right? There's a reason you're an 11 seed. There's a reason you're you're a middle of the pack, Pac-12 team. That doesn't change in three weeks in March and April. So I, I think this is where the Cinderella story comes to an end. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Gonzaga wins this thing by by 20 points going away. Now, that brings us to our final. We're just going to pick the team here. Obviously, no point spread on that game since we don't know what the matchup will actually be. But just, just to pick the champion, which of the two, Dave, do you think gets it done? I think Gonzaga goes
1: undefeated. I think it's, I think they just uh, finish off this great season and uh, become kind of one of the remarkable stories of uh, our year sports-wise.
0: I agree with you. First undefeated team in 45 years, if they can pull this off. So I, I think a lot of people would be rooting for them. My daughter, who just entered the rooms, is not one of them though. She wants Baylor to win.
1: She, she wants to go to Baylor now. So I do. That, okay, there we go. So,
0: all right. Well, sure. I, there's a lot of Texans, I'm sure, nearby that are that are loyal to Baylor, rooting for Baylor. Don't 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 begrudge them that, or Houston for that matter. That's right. But I think the, the there's a lot of support for Gonzaga, and I think they're going to pull this out. All right, well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today and contact us by email, mm-hmm. Democracy in America today at gmail.com. Have a great Easter. We look forward to seeing you next week.